Hello, welcome to Rusty Sonnets, the podcast where I take an old poem, read it out, give it a good going over before I wander off on one. My name is Niall and today we'll be reading To His Son by Walter Raleigh. Um, sorry if I'm a day late everyone, I'm, I'm, I, again I, I seem to have been delayed by some stuff, I've had a bit of a sore throat but don't worry I've had some strepsils before recording this so i've actually solved all the problems in the world to do with uh, that circulate around my sore throat also the sink the kitchen sink drama that i had last week uh still going on that's enough about my life let's talk about sir walter raleigh so you might know sir walter raleigh probably from his portrayals in many um evocations of the elizabethan court he was of course a, a favored knight of queen elizabeth and he's He's known as an explorer, isn't he? So he's known as the Queen's, one of the Queen's favourite knights, um, a dashing knight as well. Queen Elizabeth was very fond of him. And he, uh, he, you know, but we know him as an explorer. We probably know him falsely as the man who introduced tobacco and the potato to the United Kingdom or to England. And that's almost certainly wrong um the 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 spanish got there first and um they had lots of potatoes and lots of backy and so they would just ship up the maris pipers and the silk cuts and the marlborough up to us i guess whatever brands of tobacco or potatoes they had at the time so he was not the discoverer of all these little things uh, so a lot of that was embellished in fact when we really look over his life it's not quite as glorious or as dashing um, as we take it to be. But of course, Sir Walter Raleigh was also a poet. And as many people who were in Queen Elizabeth's court, he won favour, he won great favour by presenting poems, particularly sonnets, to the court. We've spoken about this already in a few previous episodes, haven't we, about how the sonnet really was one mechanism of getting yourself up the higher ranks within court and winning favour with the Queen or the King. So he was a sonnet writer. He wrote lots of, of flattering sonnets to Elizabeth as well, probably as as they all did, um, holding her up as a great sort of the unattainable virgin queen. A little bit about his life then. He was he he was born in 1552. He was born to a wealthy family in Devon, I think. He went to Oxford. He didn't finish his studies in Oxford. He he went to study law in london and then um, in 1580 he went to ireland to suppress the desmond rebellions so very much part of that ongoing campaign of brutality of the english in ireland um, some lords in ireland had started rebelling um, a little armed struggle popped up there so off he went to take part in those in the end he was commended for his bravery in his irish campaign he was given lots of land in ireland as well he was a landlord in ireland um, but um, the main thing that he seems to have been commended for his bravery for was leading a massacre of 600 unarmed Italian and Spanish soldiers. What a guy. So uh, he returned to court and he he won great favour with Queen Elizabeth. She was, He was one of her favourites, definitely. He ended up serving as a, an advisor for Irish affairs. He was knighted in 1585 and in 1587 he became the captain of the Queen's Guard. In, at that time, he also established a, economy, a, a colony in the Americas. So he sailed to America before, but this is another time he sailed to the Americas. He, he settled a colony. And when people went back to see where, how that colony were doing, they'd carved some kind of... I can't remember if they carved the name of another island on a, on, a, on a tree, which was meant to be one of the 
the the things that they had to do so if they had to move on from the colony carve the name of the location you're going to in a tree so they had carved something in a tree but they were never found so who knows what happened whether they were lost at sea on the way to this island uh whether they starved on the way to this island or whether the um native tribes had massacred them no one really knows um another great resounding success within the portfolio of water rally so um he but still he was a favorite of a queen and he was a, he was uh he was a captain of a queen's guard um but uh, then he decided to marry one of queen elizabeth's ladies in waiting elizabeth throckmorton and he, they did it in secret and they were probably in some ways i guess a little bit wise to do it in secret because when lizzie found out about it she wasn't happy she was she was enraged that he'd have the audacity to marry some woman that he was in love with when she was the centre of everything. So she threw them both in her towers, in separate cells. It's a nice touch, isn't it? Not a little hubby and wife cell with ensuite bathroom. No, in separate cells in the Tower of London. Now, he managed to sort of get released in the end he didn't spend too long there and he slowly worked his way back into a good books part of this was when he did go to america and he also um i think there was some kind of spanish some battle against the spanish that he, he helped out with and so he won favor with her again and he became made he was made captain of the queen's guard again got his old job back so um that was good he's also he also put down a rebellion from the Earl of essex so there he was golden boy back in her graces, writing poems about how wonderful she is, and then she died. And James I took over, and James, oh, Jamesy, Jimmy boy, did not like Walter Raleigh. Didn't like him at all. Didn't like him at all. And he decided that Walter Raleigh, yeah, he, I bet he's up to no good, he thought to himself. So he, uh, whether they were true or not, he uh, brought charges of treason to Walter Raleigh and he imprisoned him. Again, back to the tower you go, mate. And he was in the Tower of London for 13 years. Now, perhaps in um, in desperation, he wanted to get out of the tower. He wanted to have that last chance to prove himself. Walter Raleigh took a bit of a gamble. He said, oh, look... James, not Charles, James, I know some, look mate, I know, I know where there's a lot of gold, a city of gold, El Dorado, you know El Dorado, it's there, I know where it is, let me get a ship, let me take my sons, we'll fill up a ship with gold, bring it back to you, and you'll have a lot of money, you know, that'll be your gold as well, just let me out of this tower so I can finally bring something, do something of value for you, I can't do anything while locked away like this, so James the first sort of eyed him suspiciously and said, all right then, and um, off he went. Now the thing is, he he knew there wasn't any gold where he was going. It was all a bit of a ruse. But he had this other plan, which was that he was going to attack. He knew that the, the Spanish were finding gold, and the Spanish had colonised some areas where they find gold. So he decided he was basically going to commit an act of piracy, and he was going to attack a Spanish ship, and grab all their gold, and then. There was a truce, right? There was a truce going on at the time between the English and the Spanish. There was that whole Armada thing that happened a few years before. So, you know, things weren't too easy. And this was going to go against that truce. But he was hoping that he would get hold, get hold of so much gold that James I would go, yeah, all right then, don't worry about it. Bit naughty, bit naughty. Don't do that again. He eh? might get us in trouble. But, you know, all right then. 
So that was his plan. So he went in the, um, he attacked a Spanish ship. They had a bit of a battle. And uh, by all accounts, uh, the, ba- the Spanish got the better of him. And his eldest son was killed as well in that particular skirmish. And so he returned uh, back to Blighty without a little gold doubloon to rub together. And James I really wasn't happy. And uh, so um, in order to express that unhappiness, um, he had Walter Raleigh beheaded outside the Palace of Westminster in 1618. And that was the end of Walter Raleigh. So, you know, maybe, you know, a bit of a, now that we look at his biography. Oh, by the way, when he was in jail, he did a lot of writing. And I think the poem that we're looking at today was was probably written when he was in jail. It's quite a miserable poem. It's quite a sad poem. And, um, I, you know, probably was thinking about his family. He probably was quite remorseful when he wrote it. He also wrote a history of the world, didn't he? Yeah. Which is meant to be a more, you know... Very much respected as a work of literature, maybe not as a work of history, um, as well as the legend of El Dorado, which is, of course, this little legend that he um, he uh, that he presented James I with in order to try and get a little bit of free time, a bit of sailing with his sons but out in the open water. What a time. Shame it all ended in bloodshed and death. So he um, he wrote this poem while he was in the jail cell. So um, the poem is a sonnet. But it's different from the other courtly sonnet. This doesn't seem like a sonnet. I mean, it's very witty and it's quite clever and it has some interesting conceits within it. But it probably was a personal sonnet that was written to his son. So, yeah, I I think it's quite an interesting work of literature and we're going to look at it right now. To His Son by Walter Raleigh Three things there be that prosper up apace and flourish whilst they grow asunder far. But on a day they meet all in one place, and when they meet, they one another mar. And they be these, the wood, the weed, the wag. The wood is that which makes the gallow tree, the weed is that which strings the hangman's bag, the wag, my pretty knave, betokeneth thee. Mark well, dear boy, Whilst these assemble not, Green springs the tree, hemp grows, The wag is wild. But when they meet, It makes the timber rot, It frets the halter, And it chokes the child. Then bless thee, And beware, And let us pray, We part not with thee, At this meeting day. So that was To His Son by Walter Raleigh, what a sad, sad, miserable poem, especially now that we um, we read it just after I imparted the information that the son he probably wrote that poem about has died. So quite prophetic in its own way. But of course, um, well, we'll talk about that in a minute, shall we? I'll do what I always do. And we'll just look at the poem in what's being said. Then we'll look a little bit at the form. And then we'll make some wild inferences about the poem and then I'll just go off on one, wander off on one even at the end. So to look at a poem, I, I think, yes, I can talk about the form and the content, but actually sometimes it's it's in, you have to talk about them at the same time, especially when it's a sonnet. So this is a Shakespearean sonnet and it's it's 
well, I mean, I don't know if he was writing it in the form of Shakespeare or whether it's just a form of sonnet that was popular in Shakespearean time. So the Shakespearean sonnet normally has three quatrains. So that's three lines, uh, three sets of four lines. And then finally, a final couplet. Now, this is all written in one stanza, but we can still sort of look at them as quatrains and a final couplet. Now, if it's an Italian sonnet, normally there's this idea of the octave and then the um, then the sestet after the octave. So the first eight lines, the first six lines, and there's normally something called a turn in between them. So is there a turn in this sonnet? We'll have a look in a moment. But why, the reason why I'm just saying this about the form of a sonnet, because I want to, yes, I want to look at the subject matter and look at what the actual argument is in the poem. But um, I'll do it by dividing it into its parts. So the first four lines... He just introduces the subject matter. Basically, he introduces three things, and he says that they uh, they grow they they grow apart. They are apart, um, but when they're together, they one another mar. So they they have a terrible effect on each other. So that's pretty much the summary of the argument in the first quatrain. The second quatrain details what these three things are. They are the wood, the weed, and the wag. I'm sure in contemporary times we might have our own our own interpretations of the wood the weed and the wag you know the wood being well i'm not going to say what the wood is and then the weed being obviously the weed um and i guess what we'd say the wag is um someone who's the significant other of a very rich football player but that's not what he means it here so the wood is is well luckily he 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 elaborates on what he means by the wood the weed and the wag so he says that the wood is that which makes the gallow tree there's the wood the gallow tree um the weed is that which strings the handman's bag and the wag, so yeah, the weed is literally the straw or whatever, but um, the sack that is placed over the head of who's going to be hung. Who's going to be hung? That's the wag, my pretty knave betokeneth thee. So the wag in this sense is actually his son. Um, he's addressing his son, um, calling him a pretty knave. And now a wag is someone... Well, I think it's still pretty much the same as that contemporary. So it's not wag as in a dog's tail wagging. Although, well, looking at the imagery of the poem, maybe that does come into it. But ultimately, it's a wag like, I guess, a scallywag. A wag. Oh, you wag. You naughty, silly man. It's like that crafty little joker. That's a wag in this sense that I think it's meant. So the wag, my pretty knave, betokeneth thee. So the final, well... The final quatrain before we get onto our sestet. Uh, mark well, dear boy, whilst these assemble not. Green springs the tree, hemp grows, the wag is wild. All these things are sort of wild and free in their own way. But when they meet, it makes the timber rot. It threats the halter and it chokes the child. Um, so yes, all of these things, you know, the, the, um, the wood is rotten. And the um, the the, the weaves um, of of the uh, of of the weeds, I guess they're just they're fretted together, and then finally the child is choked. The child being, of course, his son, and then the final couplet: "Then bless thee and beware, and let us pray we part not with thee at this meeting day." So the final couplet is just so dark, isn't it? Because it sort of says that this. These feasts, in a lot of ways, these three things are meant to come together. There will be a tree growing that will... I don't know if he means... When he says the gallows tree, I don't know if he means just a tree that someone will be hung from or whether it's a 
the gallow tree is um an actual you know a chop down you know just the the actual gallows themselves that have been assembled and uh they just call it a gallow tree i'm not sure so these things are all sort of growing in their own way the tree the child but some they will come together you know the, the the hemp will be weaved into a sack the wood will be fashioned into a gallows and some poor wag will be found to be strung up and hung that's that's basically it so don't they're coming together don't be one of those parts young man so it's a sad warning to his son of course what makes it really sad is of course his son did die but his son died because of his dad's desperation and ambition I mean, maybe it was his own desperation ambition too, but ultimately he was killed because of his dad going on this foolhardy voyage to take out a Spanish ship, and a Spanish ship seemed well-armed and ready to deal with him. So, you call it hubris, call it whatever. Now, this was probably written while he was in the tower. Maybe he just had a visit from his son. Maybe he hadn't seen his son for a while, and he was thinking about his son while in the cell. Maybe, maybe before he was in this cell for 13 years maybe he was quite capable but maybe he was just a bit i don't know maybe 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 the older francis drake could have taken out this spanish ship it still sounds like a crazy risk to take maybe this guy who'd been in jail for 13 years just didn't have it anymore i don't know so but it was written you can tell that it was written in that moment there's no hubris in this poem there there only seems to be misery and regret so the rhyme scheme um yeah the rhyme scheme is quite straightforward it's a shakespearean sonnet um so a b a b c d c d e f e f and then a g g couplet it's pretty straightforward in that sense there's lots of lovely alliteration in this poem so in the first stanza we have a the repetition of meat in both lines around the same point halfway through and then ma at the end of that final line of the final of the first quatrain and then lots of W's with the repetition again of in the first line of that stanza, the second stanza we have in the final part of the first line, the wood, the weed, the wag. And then um, wood, we, we, weed and wag are repeated at the beginning of each line in the rest of that stanza. And then finally there's the, the quite, this, the, you know, where in the second line, um we have alliteration again at the end of the line uh, second line of the, the final quatrain the wag is wild which echoes some alliteration in the two lines later at the end of that quatrain which is chokes the child so the wag is wild and chokes the child so i love the way that that alliteration stitches those two lines together the, the two alliterative endings to a line they share the rhyme and um you know it's the sort of the noun and well the verb and the noun together wag is wild chokes the child and so these are kind of brought together these two images aren't they the wag the wild weed or the wag sorry it's the wag that is wild so the the scallywag is wild but the child is choked at the same time it's almost like he becomes a child again at the moment that he is hung it's a very sad and surprising image um quite humane quite humane from a man who slaughtered 600 unarmed troops um, but that's what people can be like in their moment of uh, in their moment of solitude, can't they? In their moment when they realise it's all gone wrong. So yeah, so uh, um, I, I just I just still like it. I just think it's a very well constructed sonnet. It has a really interesting conceit in the sense that it's about three things that grow separately, but when they come together, they ruin each other. They ruin each other as well. 
so they have to be kept apart but they won't be kept apart so just make sure that you're not one of those parts when they do come together there's a real pessimism that, that sort of works its way through the poem and obviously i don't think this would be the kind of poems that someone would present to their monarch in court just sort of say what a wonderful wit i am everyone's just like oh you i'm really depressed now why did you read me that so it is a really sad poem even though i i find it hard to, to take pity on sir walter raleigh in a way because he just seemed to cause a lot of harm in his life didn't he so be it be it the setting in motion um the colonization of the united states and especially the displacement and the genocide of the native peoples or um you know the the people that he just landed there oh you're a colony now off you go nice one. Oh, well, i don't know where they are probably dead um his oppression of the irish and um just the way he just seemed to be i don't know just seemed to be quite cavalier for want of a better word uh, about about what he did with his life and the people around him and yet we can all empathize with this little moment can't we so yeah i just think he's 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 got you know he was a good poet he has a good handle on the verse um the the, the the way that the idea i like the sonnet because the sonnet is all about sometimes it's just one idea isn't it that's developed over this very small and quite intense uh, progression of 14 lines while the sonnet can be an emotional work and we always associate it with love and the overspilling of emotion it's it's an intelligent form as well and it is quite intellectual ideas tend to and the use of imagery tend to sort of sit together along with the music and the emotion in the sonnet as well and they are quite self-contained uh, to use the don patterson phrase they're quite self-contained little machines so um it's quite a short one today <laughs> so I've, I've spoken about that poem for 10 minutes and now i am i am going to wander off on one main reason why right main reason why this is quite a short one and it might be the shortest rusty sonnets ever but they have been quite long recently haven't they but the main reason why it's quite short is because i have a really sore throat and um you probably won't notice it because i'll have edited them out but i've been hacking and coughing all my way through this and the strepsils aren't working i believed in you strepsils so already and i'm sure we're only about 20 minutes into this whole podcast but already i think it's time for me to call on you know a man who perhaps shared a few qualities with walter raleigh in some ways but um i don't know i'd rather have a beer with this guy uh but it's time for me to wander off on one isn't that right rick flair now that's what I wanted to go off on one about, having a beer with someone. There was um, an advertising campaign for a beer. I won't name that beer and continue, no, but it was like a viral video advert. And the viral video was taking people who were um, opposed, you know, they perhaps had different political views and... Um, and make them sort of do something like assemble a bookshelf or a table or do some puzzles together and then it showed a video of what they say so one was a feminist and one was a guy who was like an anti-feminist and then one was this um this bloke who was pretty much i guess a transphobe who was um who was in the army and then the other person was a woman a trans woman who um as as a man had been in the army as well um, but was now a woman and and so I remember one quite funny moment actually it was quite nice in a way which is afterwards all of a sudden this beer appeared like they had these two beers and of course it was this 
awful brand of 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 uh of rubbish lager and they um and and so these beers would appear and it would be and they play the videos of them saying horrible things that the other person would find offensive and then it would say okay so you have a choice you can either um walk away or you can have a beer together after doing this little task together and of course everyone chose to have the beer together um but you know in one um but in one of them, like the transphobic guy made like he was going to walk off and then um, the trans woman looked a bit dejected for a second. And then he turned around to go like, ah, ha, ha, come on, let's have a beer. And um, and she laughed and it seemed all nice. Now, I don't want to take away from whatever profound experiences that those people had. I mean, firstly, because it's beer, there was no Islamophobe and, um, and imam, is there, <laughs> you know, in that one. So already we're in a seeming ground of equality, but actually it's not as equal when we inspect it. So, but this idea that also that, you know, we're all human, but, but I think the other thing is it, it, it presented, I, I just think that I'm sorry, that being trans is not as objectionable as being a transphobe. That's what I say. And I will assert that in the same way that I, I felt the same way about the feminist and then the anti-feminist guy. I just felt this isn't really, you know, I think the feminist woman is dealing with particular issues and the anti-feminist guy is just being a jack off for want of a better term. So, but it kind of again portrays that idea of equality and maybe we all just need to settle down and have a beer together. And ultimately I, I obviously don't like it because it's an exploitational piece of marketing, you know, at the end of the day. It's taking things, the frustrations that we feel right quite right now in quite a divided and ideologically separated society and just saying ultimately, but it's our product that can heal this divide. That said, I was thinking about this the other day. So I don't know, I did a northern accent there. Sorry about that. Anyone from up north listening to this. Um, how you doing? You all right? Good. So anyway, but I think what I think, right, is that is there a, is there a space where I can still come together with someone? So, for instance, Walter Raleigh, right? I just, he don't, he, he seems like a wrong'un to me. He really does seem like quite the wrong'un. There's a man of Irish ancestry, you know, my parents are from Ireland. Um, I I just think the man's a wrong'un, Oliver like Oliver Cromwell and a load of others, and you know, and I'm sure people who kind of you know the the, the native people of the um the the of the continents that came to be known as the Americas, I'm sure would also look, have quite a dim view of him, and yet part of me can read this poem and sympathise why I guess because I'm a parent. So there is that sense in that sense that I know that there's this weird thing that no matter how much of a piece of mouth someone can be, they have their love for their child um, and that can kind of humanize them in your eyes. So I guess in that sense, maybe, maybe, maybe at a children's group. No, not even then. I think I've been at children's group and thought, no, nah, I don't want to talk to you, mate. So um, I'll tell you what it is. And I, f- I, I might feel like I'm... Um, proselytizing here so i don't want to proselytize too much but i've been practicing meditation again i've practiced it on and off for about 20 years but i've been public i've been back into it quite deeply for about two three months and the interesting thing right is is that um i had a bit of a breakthrough and i certainly experienced the state of being that didn't seem to involve this my thoughts or the idea of being a little person, a little geezer, as Ken Campbell called it, sort of sitting between me ears and just behind me eyes, that little geezer. I seemed to, to become something, let's say, a lot bigger than that, and that it seemed to be more of a purer state of being. 
And I can imagine myself perhaps meditating or having a meditation session with someone who perhaps holds terrible views or has done terrible things. But if we both occupied this state of being, it would be, I don't know, there would be a connection between us and it would be a connection that I would feel okay with. Does that sound weird? Does that sound spooky and and woo-woo and maybe a bit, I don't know, religious? Oh my God. But yeah, and I did think, I think if someone else experienced this state of mind, but I also think if they truly experienced that state of mind, they wouldn't be as bad or unkind or they... I couldn't see how they could return to their old views that perhaps vilified certain people here and there. So it's a big old I don't know, but perhaps I, I mean, I think there was a time where I just thought I would never do anything. I would never do it. But, but now I kind of, you know, I would never do anything to connect with people who have terrible views. And I think I've spoken in previous episodes about why I would have an argument or a constructive debate with a conservative, but I could never do it with a fascist. Um, because there's no, at the very core, our values are ir- irreconcilable. But I um, I do think more about how we can all experience states of being that perhaps for a moment uh, help us to rise above our views, rise above our ideas of who we are and our personas. So ultimately, if Walter Raleigh turned up and we said, can I read a poem, and we both meditated together, then I might I might be all right with him. I don't know. <laughs> for a little while until my persona returns and his persona returns and then we're at loggerheads again I don't know but um it does remind me of Malcolm X when he um when he had certain views about white people and of course he was a you know fighting racism fighting for black power and um how he changed those views when he prayed next to a white man in Mecca and how he felt that still you know the the struggle of black people had to be autonomous but they would at least help accept the help not the patronage or the leadership but the help of white people in the struggle and it, but he had a bit of an epiphany i think when he went to mecca and there was a white man next to him and he realized the connection perhaps there really was this finally this connection that he had between these two people that he felt he would have been completely opposed to in the past so there's something to think of i guess is there or is there even though i've denied it for certain things in the past is there a place where we can all connect i don't know something to think about sorry this was a little bit late i might transfer to doing these every sunday might be easier for me i think rather than disappointing you all but anyway thank you for listening to this one um oh i forgot to beg didn't i i forgot to beg please share this podcast please share it on all your social media I feel like I'm in my cell in the Tower of London, being very meek. Let me get some gold from 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 the Americas. I know there's loads, Mister James Kingy. So yeah, if you can share it, share it. That'd be great. Share it via social media. Share it via your face to face contact with people. Share it over the phone. Don't like play it over a phone line at people. Just tell them where they can find it. And um, if you can leave a nice review wherever you can leave a review, which I know you can do on iTunes, but you might be able to do it on Spotify and SoundCloud as well. That would be really nice. And you can say hello to me on Poet Nile at Twitter, P-O-E-T-N-I-A-L-L. Or if you want to be a bit more long-winded, then um, email me at rustysonnets at gmail.com. That's all one word, rustysonnets at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a good one. Bye-bye.